Well, thank you, worship team, for, for leading us in worship. God-honoring song. Always such a joy just to be able to come before the Lord and, and to sing and sing, sing songs and hymns and prayers with one another. And uh, just thank you also, Charlotte, for your testimony. What encouragement that is to us. We're going to have a time to give attention to the Word this morning. But before I do that, I just want to, I just want to say a few words about something that's going to be happening fairly soon, and, and that's our, our missions offering, which is going to be April 27th. And I want to talk about the, the missions offering just because I just want you to understand a little bit of our heart and why we're having this offering and, and what it means for us. Now, we're going to have only one offering where we're going to ask uh, you to prayerfully consider just to give for the cause of short-term missions for this summer to support our short-term missionaries as they go out and minister to the Coils and minister to the Smiths this year. And we want to make this a special time. I want you to think about it. Just pray about it. See the Lord to put on your heart to, to be able to give. And you still have a little bit of time to, to think about that and to prepare yourselves and think about how that would even work into your budget, perhaps. Now, we do have some other fundraisers, which we're going to be doing. But these fundraisers are really geared for uh, gaining funds outside of the church, just looking for opportunities uh, to kind of help supplement that. I know that for many who go, it's a, it is a quite a, an investment in terms of time and also money. So just want to encourage you just to pray, just to be prayerful, consider what the Lord would have for you just uh, for this summer and see how you might be able to partner in terms of finances with our short-term missions teams. So with that, let's uh, give our attention to the Word. Our text this morning, again, is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And I want to start with the story this morning that I think will help to illustrate a little bit of the point of this passage of Scripture. Now, last summer, uh, as some of you know, I had the opportunity to go and minister to our missionaries in the Czech Republic, to Peter and to Sonia Smith. And our team was teaching English to a group of Czech nationals there. And I had about five or seven Czech nationals, Czech people who were in my English class, one day we were having a uh, discussion in a small classroom, and as I'm picking up the piece of chalk and in the middle of my lesson, there are three married women who are in the class with me there, all of whom who have young children. And all of a sudden, out of the middle, out of nowhere, these three women just have this terrified look on their face, and all three of them at once just stand up and bolt out of the room. And so I want you to imagine me just standing here doing my lesson, and all of a sudden these three women just get up and just leave out of the room. And so, of course, my first thought is, three women fleeing in fear from my presence. I was like, what did I do? And then the sad thought is, uh, this has happened before. (laughs) And then a worse thought yet, but never all three at once. Well, it turned out that uh, there was a young boy who had taken a spill and uh, had gotten hurt. And the women, one of whom was the young boy's mother, had heard the cry of this young boy. Now, they were, of course, concerned for him. They went to check on him. And they found the little boy. They found out that he wasn't seriously hurt. He was, he was bleeding a little bit and since he'd taken a fall. But he ended up being okay. Went to took a trip to the doctor. So we continued our English lesson. Uh, and so uh, everything was all right. My ego suffered a little bit, but everything was okay with our lesson. And that was that. But 
There's something interesting about this story that I wanted to share with you. What's interesting about this story is that for days on end, I'd been listening seemingly all day long to what children crying in the camp there where we were at, constantly, constantly whimpering, complaining. And why? For very serious reasons like, you know, someone stole my candy or I have to go to the bathroom now or I want to go to the pool. So they're crying, they're whimpering, they're complaining, and it seems like they were good at it. It's almost like they'd mastered the art of it. You know, there's like different kinds of crying, and there's this like full throat, just kind of high-pitched roar of a cry, and it's like, I'm loud, pay attention to me. And then there was a cry, it was kind of like a low moan, and it's all like this choked up whimper, and it seems to work best with a lot of tears. It says, I need emotional support. Someone console me over the candy that someone stole from me. So kids are crying constantly during the camp, all day long. But somehow, somehow these three women, all of whom were mothers, were able to realize that the cry that they were hearing was not an unimportant one that they could ignore. They realized that the cry that they heard, it meant business. Now how is it that they were able to do that? I mean, I don't claim to be the most observant, but I could barely hear the kids crying at all, let alone figure out that there was something that was wrong. And yet they could distinguish just finally from the tone of voice of this cry that there, that there was something important that was happening and something that they had to check out. And so how were they able to do it? Was it maternal instinct? And perhaps mother just knows? Maybe, Perhaps. I wouldn't want to argue with that, but I think that there's something that's an explanation that's perhaps a little bit more likely. I would submit to you that through time and experience and paying careful attention to these young children whom they loved, they had learned to distinguish between these mundane, these unimportant cries and the ones that were really serious. It was by watching, by observing, by listening time and again, it taught them. And the key was exposure. It was by exposure to these cries. And so these Czech women had their senses trained to discern between the normal cry of these kids and a desperate call for help. And if they had not had such intimate familiarity with their children, if they had not known them so well, then they might well have missed these very real cries for help of a young child who could have been in serious danger. Well, beloved, the same is true for us with the Word of God. Beloved, we need to pay careful attention to the Word of God in order to have our spiritual senses trained so that we can understand the dangers that present themselves to us and to those who are around us. And now, how are we to have our senses trained? In the same way, we also need the constant exposure and personal interaction to the Word of God. And this is the message of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. We must have our spiritual senses trained by constant exposure to and growth in the Word of God. And so in this passage, the author is starting to point out the dangers of spiritual stagnation. He's talking about flatlining in our understanding, not progressing in our understanding of the Word of God and the Gospel to which we have been exposed. Now, I want to set up the context of this very briefly. 
And for those of you who remember from a few weeks ago during our review of the book of Hebrews, this book has a sole, as a sole focus and aim the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, is supreme over the angels. He's superior to Moses. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is a more perfect high priest than Aaron and the Old Testament priests. In every way, Jesus is better than or greater than or more perfect than the Old Testament and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, this is a a meaty doctrinal book. However, it is not simply that. There are several extended passages of exhortation, passages of warning that are peppered throughout this book. In fact, the book of Hebrews is really a book with intense, brief sections of teaching, especially focusing on this idea of the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these brief, intense sections of teaching are followed by encouragement or warning. And then another teaching section, which expands on the teaching of the last section. And so you have this pattern of teaching, and then the author kind of backs up, and he gives warning and exhortation, and then he launches back in and teaches and goes into greater detail, into greater depth. And we see this in chapter 1. The author of Hebrews is focusing on the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is superior. His word is superior to the prophets. Jesus is particularly superior to the angels. And this is the sum of the teaching of the first chapter. And then the author of Hebrews launches into warning. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And the author of Hebrews warns us against drifting past the sure harbor of salvation that's in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament law, not sufficient to cover our sins. Jesus and Jesus alone is a sure harbor of faith and salvation. And so again, after this warning section, he launches again into teaching. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through about this seventh verse of chapter 3. Begin in earnest to speak on a topic that occupies most of the remainder of the book. Something near to our heart of the author of Hebrews. It is the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our perfect representative. He's one who's experienced us. He understands human nature. He came down from heaven and took on the form of a man. And so he's qualified to be a perfect high priest. Jesus Christ is superior to Moses because he was more faithful than Moses. And so after this section, again, warning. Warning in chapters three, chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13. It's really one long warning passage. And the highlights are the author of Hebrews. He calls us to beware lest we disbelieve the voice of God. He uses the example of the Israelites in the wilderness and how they spurned the voice of God. And if you remember from our teaching last week in the book of Exodus, there were many who were Israelites ethnically, but spiritually they had never been set free from bondage. Spiritually, they were still holden to the world. They had never been transformed. They had never been truly saved. And so the author of Hebrews uses this example of the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness to beseech us to be diligent Be diligent to enter into the rest of Christ, to persevere. And the author of Hebrews tells us that the word of God, which is for our salvation, if we reject it, if we neglect it, it will become our judge. Jesus makes the same point in John chapter 12 when he says, Do not think that I have come to judge. I have not come to judge, but to save. 
He who rejects me, I do not condemn him. It is the word that I have spoken that will judge him on that day. You see, those who do not respond to the evangelistic message in true faith will be judged as double guilty. First, for having sinned against God. But then secondly, for having rejected Christ and rejected the full and the complete salvation that we have in him. It is telling, and we ought not to miss this, that many of the people to whom Jesus spoke claimed to be disciples. There were many who thought that they were following him, and yet they fell away. And it turned out that that word that was to be for their salvation, it was instead to be laid up for their condemnation on the last day. And so after this uh, section of warning, again, the author of Hebrews, chapter 4, launches into a very important section of teaching. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, begins a new section where the author of Hebrews picks up again on the theme of the high priesthood of Christ. Again, the author of Hebrews had begun this in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. He's taken a warning with the, or he's taken a detour, as it were, with these warnings, and now he picks up this very important theme again. Specifically, the author of Hebrews compares the Lord Jesus Christ and his high priesthood to an ancient priest by the, by the name of Melchizedek. However, in verses 11 of chapter 5 up through chapter 6, verse 20, this teaching is again interrupted. And this time it's interrupted with the long, and with in fact the longest and most somber, even severe of warning passages. And here in Hebrews 5.11 through 6.20, the authors of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews teaches us about the dangers of spiritual stagnation, of not progressing in our understanding of Christ and his work for us. And so in verse 11, speaking about Melchizedek, who is an example, a type of Christ, the author of Hebrews says, of him we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so again, this of whom that we see in the beginning of verse 11, it's referring to Melchizedek, and we can't go into detail here. But the upshot is that this Melchizedek is superior, this priest Melchizedek was superior to the Old Testament priesthood of Aaron. In the Old Testament, we have a priesthood that is set up in the first five books of the Bible, specifically in Leviticus. It's known as the Aaronic priesthood. It's the priesthood that's based on Aaron and his descendants. But Christ is like Melchizedek in that he is a superior priest and his is a superior priesthood to that of the Old Covenant. Now, in what ways is he superior? Well, the author of Hebrews is going to go on to say, and he wants to go on to say. In fact, he has much to say about the Melchizedekan priesthood of Christ. The author wants to press on to deep and meaty truths about Christ and his high priesthood. The author of Hebrews is not content to stick with the basics because he knows that for these Hebrews to grow in the knowledge of Christ, for them to be mature in their faith, they must press on to a deep understanding of Christ and of his high priesthood. And so why is it that they're unable to hear? He says in verse 11 that these things are hard to explain. Well, why are they hard to explain? Is it because they are intellectually challenging? No, that's not it. Is it because there's, as it would be in our case, a thousand year gap in history, different situation culturally, politically, that makes it difficult for him to explain this high priesthood? 
Well, that might be true for us today, but that's not the real reason why these Hebrews were dull of hearing. It's not the reason why we are dull of hearing. The real reason they were dull of hearing was that they no longer responded to the Word of God with eagerness. They could no longer respond to the Word with willingness. And that initial zeal, this excitement that had characterized their first faith had yielded to spiritual apathy. There was a lack of a spiritual appetite for the Word of God. And we see this as the author of Hebrews continues in verse 12 as he explains the reason for believing that they've become dull of hearing. He says that by this time you ought to have become teachers. And so there had been a sufficient time that had passed by which they ought to have developed a deep understanding of Scripture so that they could begin communicating this truth to others. Now the author of Hebrews doesn't mention precisely how long they had been believers. But we know that for a few, or at least a few of them, it had been many years. In fact, a whole generation of them had been risen up in the church who had heard the word of God. This was the A.D. 30s, immediately following the death of Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews is writing to them probably in the mid-60s, so maybe some 30 years later. And the whole generation had been risen up in the church, and yet their spiritual maturity was extremely limited. By this time, they should have been accurate handlers of the Word of God. By this time, they should have been actively encouraging and shepherding others around them and teaching them the Word of God. And we ought not to think that by teachers that we mean necessarily just a pulpit ministry. What the author of Hebrews is talking about here is the skill that it takes to be able to impart gospel truth. It doesn't mean that they should have been extraordinarily gifted communicators, expositors, if you will, of of the counsel of God. Most of us in our life will never have such a ministry. But all of us are to be teachers of one another. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. And so we should all be teachers of one another. We should understand the basic truths of Scripture and of the Gospel and be able to impart them. And not only so, we ought to be able to teach unbelievers the Gospel of Christ. And Several weeks ago, uh, our... Young Adults Group Milestone, as we were teaching through the book of Acts, looking at Acts chapter 17, we talked about what this really meant. What does it really mean to, to be able to have answers for people? What does it really mean to have uh, answers for people who have questions about how the Bible squares with modern science? Do we have to be experts in all the modern disciplines of science? No. Does it mean that we have to be learned and erudite in our explanations of Christology or Soteriology or Hamartiology or Pneumatology or whatever kind of ology some theologian dreams up late at night? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. But it does mean having an answer for biblical questions. You see, there's a danger that we have of of hiding behind this uh, presuppositional apologetic. This idea that the Word of God is our authority and so it stands for itself and we would not seek to defend it. Well, the Word of God does stand for itself. 
beloved, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to know Scripture. It means that we're ready to confront the unbelief of the world around us with a thoroughly biblical worldview that can only come from a deep understanding of Scripture and a comfort level with doctrine that comes from saturating ourselves personally with the Word of God. And this is the concept I want to talk about today. I'll have more, much more to say about this later. But for now, let's suffice it to say that there should be an increasing evidence of this competence as we grow as, Christian, as Christians, a, a deeper, a more profound knowledge of Scripture and a more perfect skill to be able to relate it to the world around us. And so again, these Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians, they should have been teachers, but the author says you need someone, again, to teach you the first principles of the oracles of God. And so what does the author of Hebrews mean when he's talking about oracles here? Well, the, Lord, the word literally just means sayings. They really are referring to the divine utterance, the things which are spoken by God. Now, the word in the original here in is used in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, by the Apostle Paul. And, and in that context, he's talking about the Old Testament law. But in this context, the author of Hebrews is referring to basic gospel truth, as chapter 6, verse 1 will make clear, as the author of Hebrews, referring back to these first principles, he says, Therefore, leaving the, dis- the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or to maturity. But again, these Hebrews, far from progressing onto the mature handling of the Word of God, instead they've come to need milk and not solid food. And so what is meant by milk here? Well, some have taken to mean that this, that they were perhaps too infantile, too limited in their understanding even to be able to understand and appropriate, appropriate the truth of the gospel. So perhaps some would say that they were unable to understand the gospel. Now, the Word of God is abundantly clear that it is possible for some who have a profession of Christ, nonetheless to not have had a true heart transformation. Now, it's possible that the author of Hebrews here is is trying to say that these Hebrews are unbelievers, that they need to hear the most basic gospel truths again in order to be saved. However, I think it's more likely in the context here that the author of Hebrews is simply making a statement about their spiritual immaturity. And there's a couple of reasons I would suggest for that. First is a very parallel use that would have been familiar to these Hebrews from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3. to And the Apostle Paul says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not ready You were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. So the Apostle Paul speaks about this milk, needing milk as being in a state of spiritual immaturity. I think more importantly for our context here, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, in the conclusion to this, this very somber warning section, the author of Hebrews says, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation though we speak in this manner. And so the author of Hebrews has grave concerns, but he has this confidence that these Hebrews are believers. But I don't want you to lose this, that this is a strong rebuke, because the author of Hebrews is likening them, he's likening these Hebrews to little children. Now, we would think it's strange for little children to run around in diapers, would we not? To be running around sucking their thumbs? 
acting like little babes. I mean, how repulsive, how grotesque, really, to think of adults doing the same thing. When we see cases of stunted growth physically, mentally, we're, we're very rightfully saddened. But how much more so when it comes to spiritual things? Because there is no excuse for spiritual immaturity because all of us can profit from the Word of God. And so explaining the results of this spiritual maturity in verse 13, the author of Hebrews says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now this word of righteousness, it's in this context another title for the word of God. It's called the word of righteousness here to emphasize the moral aspect of the word. In verse 14, those who are those who are not unskilled but skilled in the word of righteousness, quote, have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. And so what's critical here is to see that it's by constant exposure to and study of the word of God. Because the author of Hebrews in verse 14 uses this phrase. He says it's by reason of use, by practice, that they've had their senses trained to discern good and evil. So their senses were trained, their senses were skilled to recognize what was good and what was evil, what was true and what was false. Or their senses were not trained. And they were to remember, if you remember this example of the three women reacting to the cry of the baby, they had had their senses trained. They had had so much experience paying careful attention to these young infants that they could know, they could detect the signs of danger. But these Hebrews had not progressed in their knowledge of Christ and in the Gospels through the Scripture. And in fact, there really is no middle ground in the Christian life. To not progress is in fact to regress. And they were leaving themselves open to false teaching and to false doctrine. And so in fact, if someone were to come to them and to say that Jesus is an angel and not the Son of God, they might have believed him. If someone were to come and to say that the temple sacrifices were sufficient that the Old Testament sacrifices were good enough to take away sins, they might also have believed them. Beloved, their senses weren't trained thoroughly enough by exposure to the Word of God to spot the danger. Now, beloved, I want to challenge us to have a greater passion, a greater personal love for Scripture. You see, because there are so many parallels between this congregation and ours. I want to suggest to you that this congregation to which the author of Hebrews writes, that they upheld high moral standards in their personal lives. In fact, the author of Hebrews never rebukes them for failure in personal holiness in the, author, in, the God, in the epistle to the Hebrews. And I would suggest that that was true for us as well. The author of Hebrews and the people to whom he wrote embraced true teaching. They had a tradition of it. They were grown up. They were steeped in the Word of God. They believed in it. It had been delivered to them. In fact, the author of Hebrews quotes extensively from the Old Testament to make points when, because precisely for this reason, because the Old Testament was believed, it was revered, and it was honored. And I want to suggest that the same is true for us as well. Now, the author of Hebrews says that the these Hebrews ministered to the saints. They were active in service. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. I want to suggest the same is true for us. 
But the key is this, and I don't want you to miss this. So if the person next to you is, is sleeping, this is high time for you to wake him up and then stop snoozing. But the key is this. The author of Hebrews was challenging these Hebrews to personally appropriate the truth of the word of God that they were hearing. The Hebrews are never rebuked for their personal conduct, the way they live out the gospel. They're always admonished. They're always warned that their understanding of the depth of the things of Christ is lacking, that it's shallow. Instead of pressing on and probing the depths of Christ, exploring the richness of gospel truth, instead of becoming passionate, absorbed, they had become dull, desensitized, tuned out, indifferent, They were pathetically apathetic. Beloved, the word of God is like a feast. If you're at a feast, you can look around and see, you can see who's really eating it up. You can see who's really taking it down. And I mean, some people do take it down. I just think of an example, not to embarrass him, but a a certain brother by the name of Daniel Pio. You can see this brother when he, uh, it's time for him to eat. He really gets down to business. You ever notice what happens to him when he put food in front of the face of Daniel Pio? I mean, this brother, he gets his game face on. And he looks serious. And what does he do next? He starts shredding it. The guy has an appetite. Now, they say that having an appetite is a sign of good health. If that's true with things spiritual, how much more with things spiritual? We're to have an appetite for the Word of God. Now, there's some others, and I, of course, I won't give any names, But for them, you give them food and um, they start nibbling at it, start picking at it, slicing the food into little geometrically precise portions before they eat and remarking about the, the lovely presentation of the food on the plate and how sad they feel that they have to eat this lovely plate of food. But there are others who love the Word of God and want to devour it. There's some who, like the psalmist, even compare their intense desire to the Word of God to, to food. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's how greatly he longed for the Word of God. Other times, the psalmist compares the Word of God to great treasure. Psalm 119, verses 14, verses 16, 20, 27, 35, 72, I could go on. The word of God is like a treasure to the psalmist. He desires it so greatly. Do we have that kind of heart that is enthralled to know him? Do you have that kind of heart that longs for the word of God? I mean, this is my heart's desire. It's my heart's desire for our young adults and milestone and also for our body. The one day people would come up to me and actually be genuinely excited, interesting about the things that they're learning in the Word of God. You know, as I was studying through the book of Exodus for our teaching last week, I want you to understand, I, I really didn't care about preaching to you. I don't chase me out of the church yet, I can explain this. But I want you to understand that the time that I had of just intimate communion, digging deep, deep into the Word of God, of studying, investigating, getting frustrated, just studying hard, just thinking, okay, I've got to hurry up and, and I've got to get a sermon out of this. And then just rebuking my own heart for thinking that way. And then the joy of finally breaking open the meaning. It's like digging for gold and finally finding the motherlode. 
you know, being gripped by God, this process of discovery in the Word is, is never exactly as it is just sitting and hearing it. There's an advantage and there's a time and a place for the, the teaching and the exposition of the Word of God, but there also has to be a time for personally appropriating the truth of God. When I'm teaching, it's really, for myself, it's just an overflow. It's just a fraction, really, of what I've learned. And I fear for some of us that we'll never experience this thrill of studying the Scriptures, of studying the Word that God has given us. Now, do we need a special gift to understand the Word? I think some would like to dismiss this call to a personal, radical desire for the Word of God by just saying it's something for those who have a, a special preaching or teaching gift. In fact, I was uh, talking to one of our young people in Milestone, and she's telling about me about her frustration in reading the Word of God. And I asked her how much time she'd spent studying in it, and she really hadn't spent that much time. And so I responded that I had been reading the book of Philippians. It took me probably 20 or 30 times before I felt like I really started to begin to understand the message. And I tell you that just to suggest to you that it's not so much the gift as it is really the time that we spend in the Word of God, studying, studying diligently for it, praying and laboring in the Word. In fact, in one sense, I'm almost tempted just to tell you to go home, that you, that you, you almost don't need a preacher at this point, that what we need is just an open Bible and a prostrated heart. almost feel tempted just to say this next Sunday, just spend some time in the Word yourself and understand it. Uh, that might not go over so well with our elders when they come back to an empty church, but the point is that this personal ownership and meditation in the whole counsel of God's Word, and particularly the person and the work of Christ, will do more to prepare us for the battle of head, to train our senses to discern good and evil, than any number of sermons. And I know, indeed, for me, the end of preaching, the desired goal is to foster this deep individual growth and passion for the Word of God. And so I want to just finish with this encouragement, which I think is so apropos. It's, it's one thing always to point out faults, and it's another thing to bring people out of, the, out of the depths of even their own struggles and lift them up to encouragement and hope. And I think that's part and parcel of the process of teaching and preaching. But here are these words from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. When the prophet Moses talks about the word of God, this is what he has to say. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Let's pray. O Lord of all creation, we thank you. O O author of, of every good and perfect gift, we are grateful that you have given us this gift, the Word of God. The Word of God is a sharp two edged sword, it pierces to the very division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. We know that on that last day, that the 
It is by the standard of the word that we will be judged. And we know that it is, it is with that word now which offers us gracious salvation in Christ. We flee to him. We flee to Christ who is for us a sure salvation. He's the harbor, this safe harbor. We flee to him, Father. We put no trust in ourselves. And Lord, we seek, we are eager, we are desire, we have passion not only to hear the Word of God, to absorb it and regurgitate it, but, Lord, to have this passion, this intense hunger, even as the psalmist did for your Word, to appropriate your truth, to know it, to love it, to have this supernatural, abounding, overflowing joy that comes from knowing it, to have true spiritual maturity, which can only come from it. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who have ownership over the Scriptures, that we desire to understand it, that we desire to be passionate about it, that we would press on to the deep things of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in the name of this Jesus, our Savior, we pray now. Amen.